The following podcast may contain explicit content, which is, I suspect, why many of you are tuning in in the first place. It's Wednesday, January 20th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Joe Biden, president of the United States, said to... Whoa, whoa, hold on. Joe Biden, president of the United States. We're done here. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth, just producer, doesn't want to wait a while to have a chocodile. Margaret Kelly says, fudgesicles. No, okay, fine. You knew the show wasn't over. You could read the amount of time left on the file in your iPhone. Though we could just loop the phrase Joe Biden president a thousand times and fool you. Today, at his inauguration, Joe Biden spoke words of healing. Kamala Harris spoke words of uplift. 22-year-old poet Amanda Gorman leaned into slant rhymes of rhythm. Garth Brooks wore denim of reconciliation. Lady Gaga sported a large bird of peace, but also presumably backstrain. It was a very Biden-esque speech, emphasizing our shared interests, unity, togetherness. Togetherness came up a couple times, in fact. And I promise you this, as the Bible says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. We will get through this together, together. This speech was good and necessary and right for the moment. And on the show, we will analyze Biden's words and mostly praise them. I do want to add, and I am a little hesitant about that, but I want to add a little bit of a, not a sour note, but a cautionary note about a speech, a speech that was both elegiac and hopeful, that both admonished and uplifted, and that's, that's all proper. But know this, know that Joe Biden is a decent man. Joe Biden is a kind person, and that's important. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Now, I think Joe Biden does have the skills that it takes to lead, but they won't be heard in a speech. They will be felt in proposals and policies and appointments and sometimes in cajoling and sometimes in rebutting a, to my mind, overly demanding left wing of his party. And I think to most fair observers' mind, an overly complicit moderate wing of the Republican Party. And let's not quibble about the idea of who's a moderate when it comes to Republicans. I'm just saying as moderate as that party allows. The moderates as within the Republican Party will in fact be needed. And to get them on board, it will take tact, tactics, and the tacit trust of all sides to craft actual achievements. Biden replaces a horrible president. There is hardly a pejorative that doesn't aptly apply to Donald Trump. And Biden embodies many virtues that were the opposite of the flaws of Trump. But the opposite of indecency is decency. It's not leadership. And the opposite of cruelty is kindness. It's not solutions. Joe Biden told us today he is a good person who believes in the goodness of Americans. Within the next four years, enough Americans have to be virtuous, but also smart and strategic to make goodness win the day. On the show today, I spiel a little bit about Joe Biden's outreach to Republicans, what it means, how it will work. But first, let us go over the inaugural address, if not line by line, then theme by theme, former presidential speechwriter for the Obama administration, Sarah DePerry, is here to analyze. Joe
Joe Biden spoke to a nation today for the first time as president. He tried, as he always does, but for the first time from that perch, he tried to heal with his words. Did he try anything else? Was he successful? Joining me now is Sarada Perry, who is a former speechwriter for Barack Obama. She is here to analyze, clarify, expound upon the president's remarks. Thanks for joining me, <laughs> Sarada. Thanks for having me. I wasn't that surprised, but I also think this was a time for not surprising the American public. So in terms of communicating uh, his tone and vision, I would say Joe Biden should be quite pleased with the speech he delivered. What do you think? Yeah, I thought he knocked it out of the park. I mean, I'm biased because I wanted him to succeed. But um, but I think, look, I think a, a really great speech does sort of has three elements. It's a great speech on paper, you know, beautifully written. It is delivered by a speaker who has credibility to convey that message. And it meets a moment that demands that person with that message. And you rarely get all three of those elements, even with inaugural addresses. I mean, most of them are pretty forgettable. But this speech kind of met all of those three criteria, I think. So I thought he did a beautiful job. And you're right. I mean, it wasn't surprising. You know, he basically was offering the same message that he's he's been offering for, you know, the half a century he's been in public life. But but I think that the way he did it in this moment and the way he touched on sort of all the things that he needed to do for this moment was really compelling. In this speech, he tried to communicate competency and decency, but that is not the stuff necessarily of soaring rhetoric. In fact, I thought he and his advisors probably made a choice we're not going to go for something that is uh, 10 out of 10. We're not going to go for the rocket's red glare, but we're going to try to calm everyone down. But do you disagree? Do you think he was really going for it with this speech? I don't disagree with you, but I don't think that soaring rhetoric is necessarily what makes a really good speech. So although his tone was more sort of sober, which I think was appropriate for this moment, um, that's certainly what President Obama did 12 years ago in his first inaugural, and frankly, in some ways, what FDR did in his, his first inaugural, to meet the moment of sort of crisis and division, I still think that he did all the things he had to do and that the country sort of really needed to hear it. But uh, to his credit, I thought that he, in this speech, he did a couple things that actually I was surprised by. Like he referred to white supremacy. That actually did surprise me. Maybe it shouldn't have, but I, I hadn't, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't know if he was going to sort of openly say that. He said the word racism, which I checked, Barack Obama never did during a speech. Now, he didn't have to. He would speak of the blood drawn by the sword and the lash, so we knew what he was talking about. But he was much more explicit. By the way, I looked it up. George W. Bush did mention the word racism. But he was much more explicit about these ills. Nativism, the word nativism was said. Much yeah. more explicit about yeah. these ills than maybe an, another candidate would have been. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and, and I guess that, that sort of impressed me and surprised me. And I also think, you know... It's funny because even just a few months ago, the convention, things were bad, but they are so much worse now, right? I mean, last night they held a memorial for the 400,000 people who are dead in large part because of Trump's incompetence. And it is a different moment in that I think people feel really sort of fragile. We feel mm -hmm. fragile as individuals against this disease. Our government sort of feels fragile. The things that bind us feel fragile. There's just, there was, there's been this sense, especially in the weeks since, since January 6th or a couple weeks since January 6th, that the whole system is fragile. And I think his sort of message of resilience, you know, that, that, that section that he had, you know, here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. 
that whole section about sometimes some days you need the hand on other days we're mm-hmm. called on to lend a hand like that very joe biden you know speaking from his own life really right about sometimes you're down and sometimes you're up and we can get through this together that felt more relevant now and like reminding us of our resilience in a way that i think in in august with it, it wasn't or july it, it almost like we weren't ready to hear that but now i think we really needed to hear that because here's the thing about life there's no accounting for what fate will deal you some days when you need a hand. There are other days when we're called to lend a hand. That's how it has to be. That's what we do for one another. Yeah, there was a lot of addressing of needs. At one point, he said, I'm going to fight as hard for those who did not support me as those who did. He's been saying this all along, and you sense that he's sincere about it. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans, all Americans. As a speechwriter, how do you um, how do you think the folksiness played? Literally, him saying "folks" a couple times. <laughs> Has anybody ever said "folks" in an inaugural address? <laughs> right, classic right. Joe Biden. But it's not a speech without it's not a Joe Biden speech without the, the classic Joe Biden transition. We will get through this together, together. Look, folks. So that's why it works. That's why it works, because it's it's not it's not as if the word folks is inherently good, but it is inherently Joe Biden and authenticity is good. Totally. I mean, he sounded like himself. It almost sounded like a fireside chat. Right. I mean, it was just Joe Biden talking to the American people. And I don't I think that's actually what this moment called for. I don't think it called for soaring rhetoric or him sounding like someone he's not. I think that he actually needed to sound the way he always does. And, and that's what people wanted. And, and you know, I I could imagine a world where somebody would say that that's kind of unpresidential, but I just don't mm-hmm. think that we're in that world right now. <laughs> yeah, let's you know contrast what I mean? it with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, didn't the, didn't the president at the time, 12 hours ago, say when he was leaving, have a nice life? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what was so weird? So weird. Uh, another speechwriter question. Where are you yeah. on the chiasmus technique? In, in this speech, he said it's not the example of our power. It's the power of our example. Classic, not what your country could do for you, what you could do for your country. We should put kids in Penn State, not the state pen. Is that old and hoary by now, or do you need a couple <laughs> of those to make it an official speech? <laughs> you need a couple of those to make an official speech, although you do need power of our example, because that is a Joe Biden classic. It's something he Mm -hmm. says all the time. So you got to have that. I mean, I'm all for these sort of rhetorical devices that make your speech a little bit more interesting, give it a little bit of lift, especially in a speech like this, where there wasn't that much rhetoric. I think it's I think it's fine to have the occasional, you know, reversible raincoat, Um, but not but not (laughs) crucial. Okay, so when you say not much rhetoric, you mean things like formal rhetorical techniques. It's all rhetoric. Correct. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And the the other thing is there are so many what I would consider cliches, but right now, it's all subjective, but after Donald Trump tore up norms, things like affirming democracy and saying the people have spoken and saying the phrase perfect union, those were more powerful than they usually are. Let's put it that way. Totally. Oh my gosh. I didn't, I didn't know that I needed to hear them until he said it. And then I was like, right, right. We, we, that is true. You have just taken the sacred oath. Um, and, 
Uh, the, the oath that George Washington took. Yes, correct. You know, I mean, like, I... I think that in a weird way, saying it's like fake it till you make it, like you just needed to say it to remind us that all this is true and we aren't some violently divided banana republic that is, you know, sinking under the weight of its own division. That we, we still have some things that we're supposed to do, some, you know, these ceremonies that we hold in order to pass on this democracy. Like it, it, do, it did feel kind of necessary, if, if, if cliche. And, and it didn't feel corny, like it could have felt cheesy but it didn't at least for me again i'm super biased but you know no no it's we're at a time when the norms have been shredded so the guy who's you know stitching together the norms it's not normal it used to be normal right but it's reclaiming the normal so it's important and it's different and it's profound and it's interesting and i do think we need it it may have even seemed a little bit much had january 6th not happened but to stand Mm -hmm. i mean just a couple of weeks ago the capitol was invaded. I mean, those pictures were so jarring and unsettling because we are a people who believe that it could never happen here. We just, that is our sort of brand of exceptionalism. That kind of stuff happens elsewhere and our democracy is self-executing. So, you know, it'll never happen here. And when it did happen here, I think, I don't know, I for one felt, again, going back to that fragility. And so, you know, him talking about sort of we're standing in the shadow of the Capitol Dome. I mean, just to kind of remind ourselves that we're still here. This is how it's supposed to go. We're doing all the things to make it go smoothly. Sorry about that little mess up a couple of weeks ago, but we're going we're gonna to keep going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. This was probably the speech that referenced events since the election more than any other inauguration. Off the top of my head, I'd say that that would have to be true. Yeah, that does sound right. That does sound right. So I can't recall exactly, but I do sense that if you had asked me, I don't know, I did a show then, maybe I said it. If you had asked me right after Donald Trump's inauguration, if the phrase Americans carnage stood out, I would have immediately said, you know, what the hell is this? Is there any phrase, any sentiment, anything that you think will be remembered from the actual content of the speech, or is it just the overall gestalt of it? The overall gestalt of the thing, including Amanda Gorman's beautiful poem, sort of the entire right? the entirety yeah. of the of the event, I think will probably be remembered more than any particular lines. But there were some lines that stood out to me. Um, you know, we must end this uncivil war. I was struck by the politics doesn't have to be a raging fire destroying everything in its path just because yeah. it was so sort of vivid and specific. And then when he when he said uh, my whole soul is in this, that really that really struck me. Uh, I, I think just because I because I believe it when he says that. I don't believe I wouldn't believe that from any politician, but I believe mm. it from from President Biden. But overall, I think and and honestly, I mean, I think the event would not have felt complete without Amanda Gorman's poem. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the windswept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover in every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country. Our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it you know on that amanda gorman point i think that maybe his presidency will reflect an instinct to step aside and let some others take mm. center stage maybe 
Kamala Harris will play a bigger role. Maybe his members of the cabinet will play a huge role. And I just kind of think at this point, Joe Biden doesn't have so much to prove, either ego-wise or, you know, tactically using the power of his personal persuasion. Maybe this inauguration will be a sign of that, where maybe others, he defers to others who have the most spectacular moment. Yeah, he's he's totally a guy who doesn't have anything to prove anymore, right? So yeah, I think you're. I think that's a that's a really spot on point. And there are plenty of people who could sort of be elevated in this moment. Um, yeah. Of course, they will all eventually run against each other for for the Democratic nomination eventually. But um, but there's so many yeah younger voices. And the truth is, like what Joe what Joe Biden does well is sort of build those relationships and do the backroom sort of glad handling and working with Congress. And he's going to have to go and rebuild relationships around the world. I mean, all the things that he has done for 50 years in public life, he's going to have to sort of keep doing. And he doesn't necessarily need to go out there and do the kind of ceremonial or not even ceremonial, but just the sort of, I guess there, there are there are room for other voices, to your point. There's there's plenty of room for other voices. And I mean, and for obviously Kamala Harris is going to be one of those voices. Yeah. So finally, I had this thought. I'm sure it didn't happen, but it would have been really cool if George W. Bush on the way out leaned over to Hillary Clinton and said, <laughs> that was some normal shit. <laughs> <laughs> that would have Maybe been the best. Maybe it happened. Do we think it happened? It oh, if it happened, I'd, I'd really have to begrudgingly say, Maybe George W. Bush wasn't the worst. <laughs> well, we know he's not the worst. <laughs> now he's not the worst, but isn't it weird that we look back and, and see him as like the statesman? I just don't even know how that happened. Right? The Cheney um, Bush family has, has any two families appreciated in our public consciousness more from the last four years than those two? Honestly, I mean, it's really jarring. And frankly, I thought that the fact that Biden and Harris could stand up there with all these smug, hypocritical... Um, Republicans from McConnell on down, who were who just you know barely accepted the results of the election, was was pretty magnanimous for them. I thought. Yeah, and maybe it gives power to his words that we have to unite and move forward. I mean, just the very fact of them that he, just the very fact that he was grace gracious showed that he was uh, living the words he was saying. Yeah. Yeah, great. Sarada Perry is a former speechwriter for Barack Obama. This was great. Come on again, Sarada. Thanks for having me, Mike. This was fun. And now the spiel. Today, Joe Biden talked to all Americans just as he conducted a campaign aimed at all Americans and no doubt will govern for the benefit of all Americans. This is in contrast to Donald Trump, whose words at his inaugural didn't specifically say, this is only for us, but did say to his people, this is for you. He told not all of us, but just the slice of us who voted for him that he was for them. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. And he also said, while they, meaning the elites, which could mean anything, while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families across our land. That all changes starting right here and right now because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. And it was clear who the you was. It was the people who stormed the Capitol and proclaimed that this is the people's house. This is our house because they argued we are the people. We're the only real people. 
We're taking it away from you. Joe Biden didn't engage in any of that. He did the opposite. In fact, he explicitly said, And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans. All Americans. So while Trump spoke to his tens of millions and said they were the real Americans who were ascendant, Joe Biden mentioned his supporters but expanded out the circle of commitment. To all those who supported our campaign, I'm humbled by the faith you've placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. So why? What does this mean? It could be read as naivete, that Joe Biden really thinks he'll be able to work with Mitch McConnell. During the campaign, a lot of Biden critics in the Democratic Party pointed to this belief, this belief in bipartisanship as Biden's Achilles heel. That's not how politics works these days. That's how getting beaten at politics works. But maybe Biden's outreach to those who didn't vote for him doesn't include the elected. It's only for the electorate. So in that way, you could say he's not naive. He knows that he can't really share strides with Mitch McConnell. He has to run over Mitch McConnell. A hard-hearted Democrat might hear Joe Biden's words, think that they're, you know, rhetoric that he's not going to back up with actions or belief in the goodness of Mitch McConnell and say, that's fine. It doesn't really cost us much. Say you're offering a hand, but make clear that that hand could take the shape of a fist. I don't know about that, because first of all, from what I know of Joe Biden, he does think he's going to achieve some things with sizable Republican support. And I think he might be right. I don't think it'll be like when Everett Dirksen worked with John F. Kennedy, but I do think the Republican Party is at a place where actual achievements of some sort will be seen as good politics in a way they haven't for the last 12 years. And if not, okay, there are 50 Democrats. If they hang together, the Republican objections will be much less relevant. And guess what? Mitch McConnell also knows this. But more than the politicians. Joe Biden, I think, is speaking to actual voters who might be Republicans, not Trumpists, but Republicans, self-identified Republicans, maybe even self-identified independents who usually vote Republican, and they want to hear this message. This message is for them. But you know who else it's for? This message that will work for Republicans, reasonable Republicans, will also work for Democrats. The message might even strike a chord in most Democrats. The popular idea, and it's backed up by a lot of polls because we do live in a polarized age, not trying to make a pun there, but damn it if I didn't. The idea is that Democrats hate Republicans. And Democrats, their main complaint is we're always getting rolled by Republicans. We got to fight with bare knuckles like Republicans. We're so damn nice. We get our lunch handed to us by Republicans over and over. It's time for us to stand up to them. And if you say that, you'll get a huge cheer at a meeting of Democrats. But you know what? There are a lot of Democrats who know there's some truth to that, those assertions. And maybe they even know that Republicans say the same thing about Democrats and that they truly mean it. But there are a lot of Democrats who do want to think of themselves as reasonable people who really can work with people that they disagree with. They're the kind of people who believe in 
civic institutions who believe in the League of Women's Voters, who are the kinds of people who listen to public radio and they appreciate when a trusted host has on a high-minded conservative and they have a thoughtful conversation. They're the kinds of people these Democrats are who have Republican friends and not only don't hate them for being Republicans, but actually find it useful to try to take their perspective from time to time. I'm not talking about Trumpists. I'm talking about respectful, productive conversations with Republicans. Many of these Democrats may have voted for a Republican at some time in their life. Maybe they live in Massachusetts or Maryland or Utah, and they like their Republican governor. And you know who else these people have a natural affinity for? Joe Biden. When I said their local NPR host had a high-minded conversation with a thoughtful conservative, a, a large percentage of this audience said, no such thing as a thoughtful conservative. But another percent said, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what I like too. Joe Biden's words are for that cohort. And these people were the people who actually were enthused to vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden's outreach to Republicans works a little like when a Republican politician might say some anti-racist words or give a speech on racial reconciliation that seems to come from a good place. Is the idea that, oh, because that Republican does that, that he'll win over a bunch of African-American voters? That's not primarily the idea. Primarily, the idea is to talk to white voters who don't want to be seen as racist and give them permission to say, oh, this guy seems okay. He seems like a non-racist, as I define it. And Joe Biden is at least giving moderate Democrats and Republicans and independents permission to say, this guy doesn't seem so bad. If I vote for him, if I support his policies, I'm not so bad. Or, I'm pretty good. I'm the kind of person who has productive, thoughtful conversations and can make agreements with people I even disagree with. Here's an unspoken slogan that I think won Joe Biden the presidency. Joe Biden, he doesn't hate you. And that is a pretty useful and unusual place to occupy in today's politics. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth produces the gist. She remembers James Garfield's words at his inauguration. I believe it is the right and duty of the United States to assert and maintain such supervision and authority over the interoceanic canal across the isthmus that connects North and South America as will protect our national interest. So true. Margaret Kelly, gist producer. She thinks of Grover Cleveland's words, the second inaugural, not the first. Quote, it behooves us to constantly watch for every symptom of insidious infirmity that threatens our national vigor. Mar if you know Margaret, she hates a threat to vigor. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Her favorite inaugural quote comes from McKinley. One of the lessons taught by the late election, which all can rejoice in, is that the citizens of the United States are both law-respecting and law-abiding people, not easily swerved from the path of patriotism and honor. Only use of the word swerved in an inauguration. The gist. To quote Franklin Pierce, and I think you know what I'm going to say, offices can be properly regarded only in the light of aids for the accomplishment of these objects, and his occupancy can confer no prerogative nor importunate desire for preferment any claim. The public interest imperatively demands that they be considered with sole reference to the duties to be performed. Huzzah! Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>